Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up to Matthew, the 19th chapter. Matthew chapter 19, we will use that uh, as really our primary base of operations tonight. We'll, we'll notice a couple of other verses along the way, but I really just want to camp pretty hard right here in Matthew chapter 19 for the duration of our study tonight as we get ready for a uh, somewhat of a special edition of Q&A night. What makes tonight's Q&A a little bit different is that I have compiled a list of commonly asked questions about this particular subject. These were not necessarily questions that were submitted to me to be specifically answered in this forum. Rather, these are just questions that I have heard posited, and I'm sure that you have as well, in various ways by different folks throughout the years. And I'm going to guess that uh, these questions will not be new to you. These will be things that will uh, be things that will come to your mind as being, yeah, okay, I've, I've heard that one before and I've heard various ideas about that one before. But what we want to do with these questions is what we want to always do with questions that pertain to God's Word. And that is that we want to treat them seriously and we want to examine them under the microscope of Scripture. That's what this is all about on Q&A night, is looking at these questions in light of the Word of God. It's great to see everybody tonight. I hope you've had a good afternoon. I'm glad that you're here. Got visitors with us once again tonight, and we appreciate you being with us this evening, and I hope you're ready to spend these next couple of minutes in the study of the Scriptures. Read with me in Matthew, the 19th chapter. I'm beginning here in verse 1. I'm going to rip off the first nine verses of the chapter. Matthew 19 and in verse 1. There the Bible says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now in many ways, these verses that we just read, I believe, are very plain and very straightforward. This is God's law for marriage. One man and one woman bound for one lifetime together which gives only one right, one single exception for divorce, and that is for the cause of sexual immorality. And even that one exception provides only one person in that marriage the right to remarry. And that, of course, is the innocent party as it pertains to the sexual immorality. This is what the Lord has said. This is what the Lord has decreed. And in my estimation, what Jesus has done here is clearly articulated, clearly communicated in understandable language, God's law for marriage and divorce and remarriage. This was not meant to be complicated. Jesus did not intend for people to have to have, you know, THDs or PhDs in New Testament Greek in order to understand this. It was meant to be simple. It was meant to be understood in such a way that anyone could grasp the will of God about marriage and then conform their lives accordingly. And yet despite the clarity of Matthew 19 verses 1 through 9, 
there has been and there continues to be lots of confusion, lots of uncertainty about that passage, particularly about the issue of divorce. You know, is there really only one reason that Jesus allows for divorce? What about this reason? Or what about that reason? You know, surely Jesus knew that there's a human element that is involved in the marriage relationship, so surely He must have given other allowances for divorce somewhere in God's Word. Well, I'm going to go ahead and give you a spoiler right now for the lesson, and that is there's not any. There's not any other allowance that God gives for divorce. What we're looking at here in Matthew chapter 19, this is it. Verse 9. And if there's any contention about that, if there's any disagreement about that, it'll have to be taken up with the Lord. He decided that. This is His law. And while we do not have time tonight to get into all of the reasons as to why God's marriage law is so narrow and so strict, in fact, in the very next verse, you may remember that the apostles, upon hearing all of this, they said, whoa, it may actually be better off for a person just not to get married at all, to which Jesus responds and says, yeah. It is a bit of a tough rule to have to abide by. But for our purposes this evening, I will simply say to you a couple of things. Number one, this law, as narrow and as strict as it may seem, it is given for our good. That is the case with all of God's laws. But then secondly, I would say about that, it can be done. What we're seeing, the ideal that Jesus describes in the first six verses or so there, this is God's ideal and it can be done. And I know this because there's people in this room who have done it and who are doing it right now. It can be done. But what about folks who say that it it, it just can't be done? Maybe folks kind of like the apostles here who say, it just seems impossible, just can't do this. What about people whose marriage maybe is, is on the rocks? Couples who maybe are just unhappily coexisting under the same roof, barely even able to tolerate one another. What do we say to the various arguments and the various lines of justification that have been given for divorce where sexual immorality is not the issue? Well, this evening, that's what I want to address for just a couple of minutes. I want to address some of those most commonly asked questions in that direction. And I want to do that for a couple of reasons. I want to do that, number one, so that we are able to give an answer to others about these issues. It will become very apparent throughout the course of our study this evening that what the Bible teaches is very, very different from what our culture teaches and what our culture believes. We need to be able to give a book, chapter, and verse kind of answer for why we stand upon God and His will. But then secondly, I want to talk about these things so that we understand, so that we know we ourselves have a firm grasp and a firm conviction about God's will as it pertains to marriage and divorce and remarriage. And so let's just start with that first question that arises from Matthew chapter 19. Okay, Brother Josh, I understand. I see what Jesus says there in verse 9 about sexual immorality being the only grounds for divorce and for remarriage, but, but what, if, what if I get divorced but don't get remarried? I mean, what could possibly be the harm in two people just choosing, maybe kind of shake hands, and we both agree on this, that we're going to just kind of go our separate ways, and we both just promise to each other and to the Lord that we're never going to get remarried. And that is a very commonly held belief that divorce is permissible provided that you just remain in a status of singlehood. 
Well, I would tell you that I think that there are some very big problems with that line of thinking. First and foremost, it just runs entirely counter to the teaching of Jesus that we just noticed here in Matthew chapter 19. Did you notice what Jesus said in verse 6? There Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I think what happens many times in Matthew 19 is people get to kind of getting ahead of things, kind of getting the cart before the horse. We get to looking at the exception in verse 9, but we haven't gotten really grounded and settled in the rule that's given in verse 6. And what is that rule? Is the rule what therefore God has joined together, it's okay to separate? Is that the rule? No. The rule is let no man separate. The rule is, in our parlance, is don't get divorced. And when we understand the rule, then and only then can we then go and look at that exception. And what is the exception clause in verse 9? Except for sexual immorality. And so what do we see here? Well, what we see here is that God wants people to get married and then stay married. And the only exception for divorce is when one partner has been unfaithful to the other sexually. There's nothing in the text about except whenever the separation is amicable between the two parties. There's nothing in the text about except for cases where both parties shake hands and agree to remain single for the remainder of their lives. That's not in Matthew 19. In fact, that's not anywhere else in all of the New Testament. Someone maybe would be ready to jump in right here and say, Ah, Josh, but what about, what about 1 Corinthians 7? Well, let's just look at 1 Corinthians 7. Because this is sometimes where folks are ready to go as soon as you say those things from, first, from Matthew 19. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says some things about marriage here in verses 10 and 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 10 and 11, Paul says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. That's an imperative statement there. Verse 11, in parentheses, But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Somebody says, aha, look at there. Verse 11. Verse 11 is giving that woman permission to divorce as long as she stays unmarried. But I would submit to you this evening that the text can't be saying that. How can Paul give permission in one verse, verse 11, when in the previous verse he said just the opposite? In the previous verse he said, don't do that. That would be a complete contradiction right here, just back-to-back verses. And we know that that can't be the case here. What Paul is saying here, what Paul is providing in verse 11, is here's what needs to be done if she does that. A mistake has been made if she departs. A mistake has been made if she chooses to divorce. But if she finds herself in that situation, and Paul and the Lord recognizes that people oftentimes are still going to do what they're going to do, then what Paul says is he says... You need to understand that there may be some consequences with that. Maybe, for example, she comes to her senses and realizes, I shouldn't have done that. And so maybe I go back to be reconciled to my husband only to find out that my husband has remarried. And now I am forced to remain in this status of singlehood. I want you to see that what Paul says in these verses really is no different than what Jesus said in Matthew 19. Paul establishes the rule in verse 10, and the rule is don't get divorced. 
And then he provides the contingency legislation for in the event that occurs. Maybe the second thing that needs to be said about this question about can I divorce as long as I don't remarry is that this question really just fails to reckon with all of the responsibilities and the obligations that God places upon husbands and wives who enter into marriage. You know, I preached last year for for like a whole year on the various roles and responsibilities and duties and obligations that husbands have and that wives have. I'm thinking, for example, about Ephesians 5, that chapter that we just referred to so many times last year that talks about how husbands have an obligation to love their wives as Christ loved the church, to nourish her, to cherish her, to care for her. I'm thinking as well about the things that were said to wives in that passage. To respect her husband, to be submissive to her husband, to love her husband. That's just one passage. We could talk about 1 Peter 3 or 1 Corinthians 7 or Colossians 3 and a host of other passages that outline the duties that each partner in that relationship has toward the other. Can I ask you? In this scenario, what about those duties? What about those obligations? How can a couple just say, hey, we we just can't get along, and so we're just going to decide to go our separate ways? Does that mean that they just get a pass on all those responsibilities that God has placed upon them as a husband and as a wife? Is there some verse in the Bible that says, oh, they are now free, they are no longer obligated to honor and to live up to their commitments in that relationship? Of course not. This idea that we can just agree to divorce without scriptural cause, that puts each party in a position where they will not be able to fulfill their marital duties toward one another. Which then brings up maybe the third problem that comes to my mind in this connection. And that is that it exposes myself and it also then exposes my partner to temptation. When two people, or maybe even if just one person in that relationship decides that, hey... Well, we just can't get along and so we're just going to have to divorce and uh, we're just going to promise that we're not going to get remarried. That puts each of those people in very compromising situations. You know, just because both parties may kind of promise on day one, yep, we're going to remain single. Not ever going to remarry, not ever going to go looking for another man, not ever going to go looking for another woman. Just because they make that promise on day one, doesn't mean that they're going to be willing to keep that promise on day 365 or two years from now or maybe even six months from now. You know, people separate oftentimes with these very good intentions, maybe the best of intentions. And they may even tell themselves, you know, I'll be fine. I'll be fine living as a single person. I can get by on my own. I can do that for the rest of my life. But then some time passes. And what happens is, is folks start to get lonely. And folks start to realize, I don't know that I'm cut out for this being alone business. Or maybe what happens is maybe another person enters into the picture and they start showing some interest. Maybe they start showing interest in me and I then begin to remember and to kind of re-feel some of those feelings of, of what it's like when someone takes notice of me. When someone seems to care about me. Someone wants to spend time with me and to be with me. And now all of a sudden, all of those promises that I once made about remaining single, suddenly now all those promises have been forgotten. I think about what Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 27 when he says to give no opportunity to the devil. And I am of the, I'm of the belief and of the mind that agreeing to divorce without scriptural cause 
That is giving opportunity to the devil. It is the kind of thing that places both parties squarely in the devil's crosshairs for temptation. Getting an unscriptural divorce with the promise that, oh, we won't remarry, I believe that violates the will of God in multiple directions. I've just given you three, but it does not find any approval in Scripture. Now that, of course, will cause someone to say, well, but Josh, you just don't understand. I am just so unhappy in my marriage. And so what you're asking me to do is you're asking me to stay with someone who does not fulfill me. You're asking me to stay in a relationship that does not make me happy. And surely, surely God would want me to be happy, right? Doesn't God want me to find joy, to find fulfillment in life? How on earth can I possibly achieve that if I'm in this miserable, loveless relationship? Now, I will go ahead and confess to you that that is a very emotional argument. I mean, who am I to argue with somebody else's feelings? If this is how you feel, I mean, who am I to come along and tell you, oh, no, you don't feel that way or you can't feel that way? No, if that's how they feel, that's how they feel. But you know, I really got to thinking about about those vows. I got to thinking about the vows that a young man and a young woman make whenever they come together in that wedding ceremony. I got to officiate a couple of those wedding ceremonies last year. In fact, both those couples are sitting in the audience this evening. And in those, uh, those wedding ceremonies and in the vow portion of the ceremonies, I remember specifically both of the grooms and both of the brides in both of those wedding ceremonies, they each pledge to take each other in sickness and in health for richer or for poorer, but they also said that they would do that, promised that they would do that for better or for worse. And I got to thinking about those vows and I got to thinking, what do those vows mean? Do they mean anything? Are those just a bunch of empty platitudes, just things that you just kind of rip off and say when you're getting married? Or do we actually mean what we say Whenever we say those words, I do. Now I understand that on the wedding day, nobody is anticipating that worse stuff. On the wedding day, everybody's just thinking about all the better aspects of it. How things are going to be great and it's just going to be fairy tale like and it's just going to be wonderful and blissful all the time. But what did we promise to each other? And what were we promising in the presence of witnesses And most importantly, what were we promising before Almighty God Himself? In our opening text in Matthew 19 and in verse 6, Jesus describes how those promises that we make to one another, they form the basis of a covenant. A covenant that God then forges together with a man and a woman and Himself at the center of it all. Which means that at that point, this is no longer about my will anymore. This isn't about how I feel and what I want. This is about God's will. It's about what does God want. Doing His will in this covenant relationship. And I would suggest to you this evening that God's will, it trumps my will and my feelings every single time. Now somebody at this point probably is going to say, Well Josh, are you saying that God just kind of wants me to be miserable in my marriage? That I just, well, I just had to just settle for this. Just, oh well, this is just the way that it is. No, sir. 
No, sir. No, ma'am. In fact, I believe, I believe that God does want us to be happy. It might surprise you to hear me say that, but I do believe that God wants us to be happy. But listen to me very carefully. That happiness is not found in divorce. That happiness is not found in breaking the marriage covenant. That happiness is not found in violating the express will of God. In fact, if you talk to people who have been divorced, and there have been surveys about this, there have been studies done about this that tend to confirm this kind of thing, what you find most often is that people many times when they're divorced, especially without scriptural cause, is that they are actually less happy when they get to the other side. They find that there are financial troubles. They find that there are family issues, particularly if there are children involved. They find that there are emotional problems, feelings of guilt and regret and loneliness, not to mention the spiritual implications of all of that. I want to say very clearly, happiness is not found in divorce. Happiness is found in doing the will of God. And you see that all throughout Scripture. I'm thinking of the psalmist in Psalm 40 and in verse 8 when he says, I take joy in doing your will. That's where we find happiness. Does God want you to be happy? Yes, He does. But what God wants more than that is He wants you to be holy. He wants you to find happiness in holiness. That's the Lord's will for you and for me and for everybody. I'm afraid that people try to construct and they try to create this this false dilemma of, oh, I guess I've really only got two options then. I either have to A, get an unscriptural divorce, or B, I have to just remain in this lousy marriage. Nope. That is a false dilemma. Because there's actually a third option in that situation. And do you know what that option is? That option is to go to work and to fix your marriage. It's to do the will of God to make your marriage what it ought to be. Are you in a loveless marriage? Okay. Why are you in a loveless marriage? Are you fussing and fighting and bickering all the time in your marriage? Okay. Why are you fussing and fighting and bickering in your marriage? Are you having communication issues in your marriage? Okay, why are you having communication issues in your marriage? That is the path to happiness. And the problem is, it is the more difficult path. And unfortunately, many people just aren't willing to do the hard work to travel that path. What we need to think about, and we need to think long and hard about, is whether we are seeking to eke out a few meager years of earthly happiness... Or are we seeking out eternal happiness in our home in heaven with the Lord? Well, somebody maybe says here, well, Brother Josh, let me maybe get a little bit more specific here. It's not just that I'm just generally unhappy in my marriage. No, there's there's actually a really specific reason as to why I'm unhappy in my marriage. There's a reason as to why I want a divorce, and that's that's because there is abuse present in the relationship. I'm the abuse of victim. I'm the, the victim of abuse in this relationship, and so I need out. I need out of this abusive relationship. Now, typically, we think of the man as being the aggressor in these types of situations, and probably most of the time, I'm guessing that probably is true. But having worked for ten years in the family court, I can tell you with absolute certainty that that is not always the case. Sometimes it is the woman who is the abuser and who is the aggressor. Now, once again, we've got a situation where we're not talking about infidelity. There's no sexual immorality present. 
But there is something bad taking place. There is abuse going on. And that could be physical abuse. It may also be verbal abuse. And I will tell you that for the longest time, I used to always kind of talk about verbal abuse as being, well, that's just so much less than physical abuse. But I've really kind of come to reshape my thinking about that, especially as I've talked with women who have been on the receiving end of verbal abuse, maybe for a sustained period of time. And I have come to realize that in many cases, it's just as bad. In fact, for some women, it may even be worse than physical abuse. They would almost rather their husband beat them physically than for them to be beaten down verbally. But that's what's going on. We've got somebody where abuse is taking place there. There's harm being done, physical harm, emotional harm. And so surely, surely God understands. Surely God gives an exception for divorce in cases of abuse, right? Well, let me just put a few ideas on the table for us to think about as we formulate where we're going to stand on that. First and foremost, we need to acknowledge that this, once again, this is an emotionally charged issue. Anytime we're talking about somebody being in a position of danger, particularly if it is a woman, someone who is a part of the fairer sex, or if it is someone who maybe has children and children are potentially in danger, or especially when it's someone that we know, maybe we've had the experience, we know someone, or maybe even we personally have been through that ourselves. And so we can put a name and we can put a face to that abuse. There is the propensity on our part then to allow our emotions to kind of drive the train. We let our emotions be the deciding factor in all of this. But we need to slow down. We need to remember what James said in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 when he said, Be slow to anger, my brothers, and why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Your emotional reaction is not the standard. My emotional reaction is not the standard. We need to always take our feelings and then make them subject to the objective Word of God. Secondly, I would say just very clearly, that if a man is putting his hands on his wife, or maybe if a man is verbally crushing his wife with his words, that is despicable. It is evil, and we need to call it for that. There is no excuse for that. There is never a rationalization for that. Especially when we talk about the case of physical abuse. In those instances, what a woman needs to do is she needs to exercise her rights under the law. She needs to call the police. She needs to get the authorities involved. That man needs to be arrested. He needs to be taken to jail. And the courts need to be involved to get that man some help. Get him some punishment and compel him to get some help. Whether that's counseling or taking some classes or doing something so that he will stop that wicked behavior. In fact, there may even be cases where churches need to step up and to get involved in that. If the man is a member of a local congregation, maybe a church exercises church discipline and takes some of those necessary steps, that needs to be dealt with and you need to understand that. I would say thirdly in that connection, that it is within the woman's right to protect herself if she is being abused. In Luke the 12th chapter, Jesus tells a little story. Maybe it's a parable. I don't know. But He tells this little story, an illustration if nothing else, to talk about the coming of the Lord. And in making that illustration, He gives, He just uses what I believe is just kind of an obvious principle. In verse 39, Jesus talks about what a man would do if he knew that a thief was coming to break into his house. 
And what Jesus says there is He says that that man would take action. He would take some steps to prevent that thief from doing that. He would do things that would stop that man from breaking into his house or harming his family or taking his possessions. It's just axiomatic. It's one of those things that I think just kind of goes without saying as Jesus is alluding here to the right of self-defense, self-preservation, the instinct that's really just kind of almost hardwired within us to protect ourselves in the face of danger. And I believe that that principle that's articulated in Luke 12 and in other places, I think that would apply for a woman or for a man who has an abusive spouse. That person has the right to take some necessary steps in order to protect themselves. If there's children involved, to make sure that those children are protected. And even if that means packing up and leaving the house, driving far away from that man, getting to a safe place, making sure the children are taken to a safe place, I believe that there are provisions for that in God's Word. There are numerous places in the old law I'm thinking, for example, in Exodus chapter 22. You read the first few verses of that chapter. There are places in the New Testament, as we just read here in Luke 12, where I think about what Jesus told the disciples to do about getting some swords so that they would be ready to defend themselves. There are occasions where action must be taken in order to preserve one's safety. We're not talking about taking action to try and kill somebody. We're talking about taking action to preserve life, to preserve one's well-being. Now, I've said a lot of things there, and I think those are all important things to say. But somebody's probably thinking right now, okay, Josh, we've still got this question here. We've still got, what about as that pertains to divorce? Can that abused mate still divorce their spouse even if no sexual immorality has taken place? Well, this is probably the point where I'm going to guess that everybody is expecting me to say something really, really profound that will cause everyone to be just fully enlightened and everybody will leave here with, oh, it all just makes sense now. and We'll be able to handle these situations perfectly every time. But the only thing that I have to offer to you is what we've already read in Matthew the 19th chapter. Let not man separate except for sexual immorality. That's it. That's all I've got. That is the teaching of Scripture that we have been given. Which means that anything that we think about this, anything that we might feel about this, it has to be brought into subjection with the clear teachings of Jesus. Now I want to be clear, that does not mean that that abused person has to continue to subject themselves to being beaten like a rag doll, either physically or verbally. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean that he or she is going to be committed to that marriage. Committed to the covenant that was made with God. Committed maybe to helping that abuser, to getting some help. Committed to working toward, as opportunities allow, to work toward peace and reconciliation once again. There must be a commitment to that business of what God has joined together. There must be a commitment to respect for God's Word as emotional as this issue is, and it always will be, I would say that it does not allow for us to just set aside the clear teaching of Jesus. We are disciples of Jesus. And part of being a disciple means we're always going to defer to the Master. That He knows what's right, and that what He says, it is for our good, and we will then submit ourselves to it. Which brings it into this fourth very common question that gets asked as it pertains to divorce. 
And this is one that you will find actually has lots of contention amongst brethren. And that is, well, well, what if somebody is divorced before they ever even become a Christian? Maybe before they ever even come to a knowledge of the truth. You know, here's somebody who they get married and they get divorced and they may even get remarried, but it didn't have anything to do with sexual immorality. There wasn't any kind of infidelity involved. The question is, does that person get a pass if all of that happened prior to becoming a Christian? Does God's marriage law somehow not apply to a person if that person was not a Christian when all of that occurred? And you should know that there are a large number of of religious folks, a lot of brethren, who would say, no, it does not. It does not apply to those individuals. What those folks will say is they'll say that Matthew 19 is Christ's law for people who are already in a covenant relationship with Christ. Non-Christians then can marry and divorce and remarry and carry on and do whatever they want because Jesus doesn't have anything to say to those people. That Matthew 19, it would not apply to whatever those people did before following Christ because those things are for Christians. Let me say two or three things in that direction. First of all, I want to point out that Jesus did not just have authority over Christians. The authority that Jesus has been given is not just limited to people who are following after Him. Jesus has universal authority. He has authority over everything and everybody. In Matthew 28 and in verse 18, in that great commission, Jesus begins by saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. There isn't anybody who is not subject to the authority of Jesus. Secondly, not only is everybody subject to Jesus, but furthermore, Jesus is going to judge everyone by His Word. In John the 12th chapter, and in verses 46, 47, and 48, Jesus says that it is His words that are going to be the standard of judgment for everybody, including people who reject His words. They're still going to be subject to it. Thirdly, A person cannot be subject to only a part of Christ's law while not being subject to all of Christ's law. Just stop and think about this practically speaking. If we expect non-Christians to be subject to the law of Christ as it pertains to faith and confession and repentance and baptism, what makes us think then that Christ's law about marriage would not also apply to them. Who gets to decide, well, I'm, I'm amenable to this and to this and to this, but, but to that over there, no, I'm, I, I'm not subject to that. I don't have to respond to that. No. The law of Jesus Christ is not some kind of a, of a buffet. You go through and just pick the part that you want. Oh, there's cauliflower. I definitely don't want that. I'm going to pick over this stuff over here and that stuff over there, the stuff that I like. No. If you are subject to some of Christ's law, and you are, then you are subject to all of Christ's law. And we all are. In fact, in 1 Corinthians the 6th chapter, in verses 9, 10, and 11, when Paul was talking to the Corinthians, he even said to them specifically, he said, during that time in your lives when you were not Christians, when you were outside of Christ, he says some of you were guilty of adultery. The very kinds of things that Jesus addressed in Matthew chapter 19. 
That is a specific sin being charged to people when they were not Christians, which means that they were amenable to God's law about marriage. Now I'll just say this. If non-Christians are not subject to Christ's marriage law in Matthew 19, then there are some questions that I think need to be answered. Number one, what law are non-Christians under if they're not under the law of Christ? Number two, how did they become sinners if they are not under a law? And number three, if they are exempt from Christ's marriage law, then what other laws can they be exempt from as well? I believe all of those are questions for which there is no answer. Because all are accountable to the law of Christ. All must repent of sin. All must submit to the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 and the whole rest of Scripture. In fact, as you turn back to Matthew chapter 19, I really probably could have just answered and simplified this question by looking at just one word in Matthew 19 verse 9. Look in verse 9 again. Jesus says there, Whosoever. Whosoever. Jesus does not direct this only to a select, narrow group of people, only to His disciples. No, Jesus says, Whosoever divorces except for fornication and marries another commits adultery. That's for everybody. And just because maybe a non-Christian does not know Christ's law whenever they get married or when they get divorced or when they get remarried, that does not make them any less culpable, any less responsible to abide by Christ's law. The law of the Lord, it is for everybody of all time. Which brings about this fifth and final question. Because as soon as somebody begins to understand, whoa, You're saying that that applies to me and yeah, it's kind of hard for me to work my way out of that. Well, do you know what that means then? If my divorce was unlawful, if my remarriage is unlawful, do you understand what that means for me? That means then that I'll have to get out of that unlawful marriage. It means I'll have to pack my stuff up. I'll have to move out of that house. I'll have to remove myself from that relationship. It means I'm going to have to reorder and restructure and redo my entire life and I'm going to essentially have to start over. You know what the answer to all that is? The answer is, yes it does. Yes, that's exactly what that means. When John the Baptist confronted King Herod in Mark the 6th chapter, He had confronted him about Herod's unlawful marriage to his brother's wife. What was the implication in John's teaching? The Scripture doesn't tell us everything about the conversations that John and Herod had over that unlawful marriage, but what was the implication that John was trying to stress? The implication was, Herod, you have to repent. You've got to get out of that. You can't be involved in that anymore. And the idea of you having to repent, that means a whole lot more than just saying, I'm sorry for doing that bad thing. That means a whole lot more than just praying to God, God, please forgive me of that bad thing that I've done. To repent means to change. It means I'm going to have to stop that sinful and ungodly and unauthorized behavior and I'm going to have to turn to the Lord. I'll have to change. 
And I'm suggesting to you that just as that meant that for Herod in Mark the 6th chapter, it will mean no less for you and I and for people today. People find themselves in unlawful situations as it pertains to their marriage. I do not pretend to imagine that somehow making those changes would not be hard or that making those kinds of changes would be painful. You can read in the book of Nehemiah, there was some intermarrying that had gone on there and when people became aware of the law of God about that, those people had to separate. They had to break those marriages up. And I imagine that was really hard for those folks. Especially folks that maybe had been married for a long time. Maybe had established a family and a home, had children and the whole nine yards. That would have been really hard to have to make that break. But it will be painful. And it will be hard. But I would suggest to you that what God is calling upon people to do who find themselves in unlawful marital situations is really the exact same thing that God calls upon all sinners to do. And that is to turn to Him and to repent, to change to change our minds, to then change our actions so that we can bring our lives into conformity with His will after the image of His Son. And when we do that, it is for our good. Matthew 19 could not have been any clearer. What God has joined together, let not man separate. With one exception, except for sexual immorality. Now, Maybe if there's one thing that has been evident this evening is that in addressing these questions, and these surely are not the only questions that people have about divorce and remarriage, etc. These are some big ones. Maybe what has been very, very clear is that our position on those things, where we stand on those things, is upon the Word of God. And what that means is, is that means that we're really not all that interested in trying to appease our culture trying to fit in with what's going on in the world so that people will be happy with us and we can be accepted by them. That's not what we are about. We are about the business of pleasing Jesus, the one who spoke those words in Matthew 19. We are about surrendering our will to His because we know that He knows what's right. He knows what is best. And we want to live for Him. And as disciples of His, we simply want to not only live what He says, but we want to teach what He says. And we do that as individuals, but we do that as well as a congregation. That we will stand upon the Word of God in these matters and in all matters so that in the day of judgment we can find ourselves pleasing to our King. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing the song that's been selected as an invitation song, number 287. There's a fountain free. There may be somebody here this evening who has not brought their will into conformity with the will of King Jesus. It is not always easy to have to make the kinds of changes that need to be made in order to come to Christ, in order to begin living for Him, and to live as a Christian. But I'll say what I said at the beginning of this lesson about this marriage and divorce stuff. It can be done. It can. There are people in the Bible who did it. There are people that we have known throughout our lives who have done that. There are people in this room right now who are doing that. 
And we want you to know this evening that it can be the same for you. You can serve Jesus. Whatever changes might need to be made in your life, it can be done by His power, with His help, the encouragement of brothers and sisters in Christ, all the other resources and tools that God gives. You can be a Christian. If you've never been baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins, all things are ready this evening for you to do just that. You can leave here tonight knowing that you are a child of God. If you are a Christian, but you've not been living like one, you've allowed your will to get out of kilter with the will of the Lord, brother or sister, this is the time to repent. Ask God for forgiveness. Maybe you just do that right where you're sitting or where you're standing. But Maybe you call upon us as your spiritual family here to assist you, pray for you, and encourage you so that we can all serve the Lord and be in heaven someday. Whatever your need may be, we encourage you and implore you through the words of this song. There's a fountain free. Why don't you come and find cleansing in that fountain? Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.